0: Hey, Atari Hackers, welcome to this week's podcast episode. So I know a lot of you guys are interested in building websites, but not a lot of you are very interested in the beginning phases of building a website, which tend to be a lot of work for very little action, very little ranking, and very little revenue, to be honest. And so one way to skip these first one to two years of the life of an authority site is to actually just buy one that exists already, that is ranking for some keywords, makes maybe some money, but it's not necessarily the most important, it's mostly the age you're buying some of the links, etc., so that you can get going, get some links, get some content and get the results really quickly. The problem is that the marketplace is sometimes a little bit deceiving, and you need to be very careful when you buy your website to make sure you're buying exactly what you think you're buying. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about exactly that. We're going to be talking about what you need to look for when you're buying a domain, when you're buying a website, what are the common tricks that might be Played on you, all the things that you might just be missing when you're buying a website, as well as share our personal opinions of whether we buy some websites with some attributes or some others. So let's get started and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. And now your hosts, Gail Breton and Mark Webster. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Atari Hacker Podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about seven things to look out when buying a website. So a lot of people decide to not start a website from scratch, but rather buy a website, mostly because usually the first few years of a website are fairly and eventful. Like they tend to take lots of work, and you don't really get much money. Much return. You don't rank very high initially. The first year, I tend to tell people that you make more money working at McDonald's, and I think that is a good, uh, it's a good analogy to like tell you it's not a get rich quick method. But after that, then it tends to be better. So one way people skip that is they buy websites. But the market of buying and selling websites is not maybe as transparent as we would like it to be, and. When you are a buyer, especially if you're a first-time buyer, especially if you've never built websites before, if you don't have much experience running an established website, you could make a lot of mistakes that end up in you buying the wrong website. And we wanted to make that podcast for you guys to avoid that. It's not worse than like buying a house. It's the same when people buy a house, right? It can people can also you know, buy the wrong house, buy a house with defects, it's been hidden by the seller, whatever basically same thing here. So I got Mark here with me today. How's it going, Mark? Going good. The smoothest Thanks, I've been going uh, transition ever. So let's just jump into this. I don't want to go on side stories or anything now. I just want to get going onto that. I think the first thing that I would question is the way sites are uh, valued. So You know, we're gonna sound old again, but you know, when we started in this market, sites would be sold for like around 20 times monthly revenue, something like this. That's that's monthly profit. Monthly profit, yeah. Today, I mean, I actually before we prepared this podcast, you know, we always go and check the temperature of the market, etc. I went on Empire Flippers and FE International, and it seems to be that forty to fifty times revenue, not profit, is kind of like the way sites are being valued these days, which is interesting because it's kind of like the peak of what it's been. It's like, I've, I haven't seen 60X or something, very much for content sites yet. I mean, we see more than that even for sales products, but for content sites, not so much. To give you an example of a listing I was looking at, I was on Empire Flippers. It is a site that is mostly monetized by ads in the sports and fitness niche. The multiple is 52X. So it's making $30,000 per month. It was created in 2019, and it's on sale at $1,548,000 for that site, which is quite interesting because I'm looking at this like and comparing it to other forms of investment, right? So apart from real estate, in the current state of the economy at the time at which we're recording, which is August 2022 right now, a lot of other investment assets have peaked and went down a little bit. So like nothing, you know, the S&P 500 is not at the peak of value anymore. A lot of like the, the bond stuff is not, etc. Pretty much everything. So like the P ratio of S&P 500 went from 37 at the peak to 21 right now. Crypto markets cooled down a lot as well. Like we're definitely not at that peak anymore yet the multiple for websites is at the highest it's ever been. And it's like, it's making me ask questions as to like, has the value of websites increased or has the market not yet adapted to maybe what more established investment assets have been going towards to in the last few months, at least. I think
1: there's another interesting dynamic that even before the whole market crash was playing out and it was affecting valuations a lot, and that's just the nature of the market being quite broker centric. Uh, So when you want to sell a site, there's typically, you know, a handful of top tier brokers, and plenty of, of smaller ones beneath that that you'll go to. And the way that they can win your business, imagine you you go to three brokers and you get three valuations. You're most likely gonna go with the one who gives you the highest price. Uh, yeah, we reckon you, we can sell your site for a million dollars. If the others are like 700, 600K, you're probably gonna go with the one that reckons they can get it for a million. And that's just the nature of the market. That's not anyone trying to you know deceive you or anything but it means that you are then in a position where its brokers are incentivized to give you a higher than realistic valuation and then start walking things back after you come on board and you sign up for, you know, six month exclusivity of listing. And this is the same concept, which happens a lot in, you know, big boy finance world, when you have companies doing IPOs and, you know, they're looking for an investment bank to help take them public. Uh, they always over promise and then start walking back, and say, oh, well actually, because your business is like this, it's only worth this, or it's only worth this. I spoke to someone who sold their site fairly recently, at, towards the end of last year, and it was on the market for, I think, nine months. And the reason being is that I think he got promised quite a high valuation initially. And I remember at the time he, he asked me about it and I said, I don't think you'll get that for it. But he was very much sort of drawn by by that price. And then over time, as nobody was interested, they started sort of knocking it down. And when it got to a more realistic multiple, I think in the sort of mid 40s, then you know, it's sold. So I think this concept has been perpetuating in the industry for a while. It's led to these this situation where the listing price or the initial listing price on a lot of these platforms is very, very high. Just in case, maybe someone who doesn't know any better, <laughs> a newbie coming uh, into market, goes, goes for it. Yeah. So pay very close attention to not only how much it listed at, but if you're speaking to them, like how much was it initially listed at? When you're buying a home, one of the things you look for is was it have they reduced the price of the, the home? That can give you a lot of indication about maybe all the other buyers saw some problems with it, or maybe it was overvalued, or or whatever else. So yeah. Pay very close attention to that.
0: Maybe how long it's been on the market as well. That's usually what I ask when yeah. I visit like apartments and stuff. Exactly. And uh, it tells you, and usually like uh, when you ask that to real estate agents, at least they make a funny face when it's been a while or something. Like they basically know they're kind of like getting cornered. On this. I think it's happening to the side market. It's like maybe your friends sold for like mid-40s, but I would not be surprised if the average was even lower now that uh, the economic situation has gotten worse since the end of last year. There's
1: a lack of transparency of data, right? Yeah. With, with houses, in most countries, um, there's sort of public registers of how much each house sold for, and you, so you can actually see that data. With sites, all you have is how much were they listed for and then nothing. You've no idea what the final sale price went for, so it's not, re- not very transparent in that, in that it, sense.
0: It's not just that, but because interest rates are, are going up, quite fast these days. Like money is more expensive. And usually that means price of big assets like that tend to go down with higher interest rates just because there's less flowing money in the economy and it's less accessible for other things. So you need to dedicate it properly. But just to finish on that point, I actually made a poll on Twitter to ask people, how do they cite valuation? Obviously, I have no idea who voted, they're not experts or anything necessarily, but it was quite interesting to see that 38.8% of people voted too high, 19.4% of people voted too low, and 41.8% of so the majority voted just right, which I guess they disagree a little bit with us, even though there's still more too high than too low. Maybe it's too high, but not too, too high, I guess. <laughs> that would be my reading in that. Or like people just that have a website for sale voted too low, people who want to buy websites voted too high, and people who don't care about it just right, you know?
1: I mean, I mean that broadly aligns with the sentiment I've heard from just talking to people and, you know, in our community and stuff. People are, if they see a good deal or they see a good site at a fair price, they'll go for it. But the general perception is that most of what you see on broker sites on places like Flippa and, and, and that for, yeah. tends to be a bit overpriced. Yeah. 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 So all the off market and the private deal flow in these situations where a lot of the the kind of persistent buyers are, are making their money.
0: Yeah, I agree. Let's jump on the next point, which is going to be the over-dependence on a few pages. And that's kind of like not unique to size that are for sale, most websites get most of their traffic from a handful of pages, like five, 10, 15, 20 pages, something like this. And so when you do the due diligence for a page, I think you need to over, like, go hardcore on doing the due diligence for these pages specifically, more than the entire website, because that's where most of the money comes from. And the initial way you're going to get your money back is the current revenue of the website. So you need to make sure that this is going to be stable for a while, at least, at least that hopefully at least you make your money back. And after that, you can maybe take more risks, etc. But quite often, Google kind of lags behind what should be ranking and what's ranking. And that's usually when we see these big shuffles in core updates, for example. So like it's quite frequent that a page with much worse content or much lower link metrics still ranks quite well because historically it's done well, even though the competitors have been putting effort into Doing something better recently, and so like I would try to catch these situations by going through each page individually, looking at the keywords they're ranked for, and looking at who else is ranking for. I go in the um, keyword explorer in Ahrefs, and you know at the bottom you have this graph of like the evolution of the sub, and I tend to Position look at
1: history, yeah. yeah,
0: and I tend to look at like people who are like slowly climbing up and looking at these pages, making sure that they're not on track to overtake me, especially when you're higher rankings, like when you're top one, two, three. Do losing one position, if you go from one to two or one to three, like you can cut 50 perc- deal, yeah. Yeah, 50% of your income. If that one page was like a big percentage of the site's income, you could be losing 20-30% like revenue, not from a big core update or something, but just from like that one page being knocked out. And often, sites that are being sold are not being worked on as actively as when they're like, You know a current project of the company that sells them, which means it's more prone to be knocked out by competitors, because if the site's been on the market for six, seven, eight months, nobody's really been looking at it as closely as they have before. It's possible that these things happen, so I would be quite careful, but at the same time as you do this, I would like to also look at the top pages that make the most money, and I'd be uh, doing some keyword research as to is there similar keywords I can write about so that I can expand on that. So, like, you know, if you're doing I don't know, if you're ranking for like best paintball guns, maybe there's no best paintball rifles page or something or something like this, like something that is very close semantically and like in terms of topic that you can write about that is also the same format so that you're very likely to rank high quickly. And you are basically evaluating the risks and the potential upsets of your top pages much more than the rest of the site, I would say, because that's really where the money comes from and that's really where your ROI is going to come from. So yeah, just pay more attention, do pretty much full keyword research and audits for these pages than the rest of the site. You can put a little bit less work into it. Basically give as much attention as percentage of revenue a page generates for the site, basically.
1: I would also add to that, that when you are valuing a site for yourself to say, you know, is it is it worth me buying it? You really want to look at what they're making based on what they currently rank for, not the kind of aspirational stuff. Because you can come in and say, oh, yeah, I could write all these pages and rank, rank for all this, but, you know, it might not happen. So don't kind of spend the money with the expectation that it's going to grow you. You need to look at what's actually happened so far.
0: Yeah, I agree. Let's jump on to the next one and uh, I'll let you take this one.
1: Yeah. So the next one we'll talk about is hidden or external sources of revenue. And I've heard multiple reports from experienced site buyers who have run into this issue when when purchasing a site. Basically what happens is you look at their, all, you go through due diligence, you know, they see they have a ton of organic traffic and, you know, some email traffic, referrals, whatever else. And then you look at the revenue and think, oh yeah, okay, all this traffic's generating all this money. Great. But If you don't tie the actual revenue being generated back to specifically to say the organic traffic from Google, it could be the case that there's a lot of sales coming through some other hidden source, which is not on the site. I know one person had a situation where they bought a site and there was a ton of sales coming from an external community. And then when the owner you know, was no longer a part of it, He was no longer a part of that community, sales started to dip quite a lot as well. So they weren't really buying, or the The site was, valuation was being overinflated by these off-site sales, which didn't continue after the purchase. So you have to be really, really careful of that. Also, there can be cases where the owner has very strong personal brand. You know, people are following them personally. Unless you work out, you know, a specific deal where you can continue to leverage their Presence or or they're going to continue to you know help promote in a certain way. You can end up in a situation where you know you've just lost a, a really big source of of leads, of sales, of clicks, of what it, whatever else. And it's just very very difficult to actually foresee that in due diligence because if you think about an affiliate site, if you go through any due diligence for a site listed on Empire Flippers, say, how do you know that the people buying from Amazon are those who have come from Google. You can sort of map it back and see, okay, so how many people came from Google look at analytics? How many people clicked on my Amazon links? Okay, cool. Of the people clicking on my Amazon links, what's my CTR? But you may have 90% of the organic traffic clicking on on Amazon links and and making 10% of the sales, whereas all of them are coming from some external source, community, social media, Reddit, wherever else. And they're making, you know, the majority of the sales and it just kind of skews the results quite a lot. So you have to be very, very careful. I would that.
0: argue for an Amazon site, it's unlikely. But for, for like, uh, for Atari hacker. I was just thinking like this example is like, if someone bought Atari hacker, it's typically the example where like, well, we have uh, SEO traffic and people would like check that out and they'd value that, etc. But if someone took over Atari hacker, I don't think that courses would sell as much initially, at least until they've proven themselves to the community and all i think recommendations would convert as high because people trust us because hopefully we've made good enough recommendations in the past and all called out tools that we think are not valuable for example things like that but like if a completely new face showed up they would need to own that trust again. It it basically resets to the community and they probably would be a little bit defiant at the beginning because of that change, you know, like people tend to be a little bit like that. And so in that aspect, like you couldn't count on making the same volume of like revenue that we make As authority hacker, if we were not here personally anymore, at least initially, if you do a good job transitioning, it can be doing okay. But like, that's when I would like want to leverage us to do transition podcasts, transition videos, etc. Like, mix content with us and them, things like that, like that kind of stuff. Don't worry, we're not selling authority hacker, but I think it's a good example of uh, something that could happen, you know?
1: There was actually a, th- this happened in the industry, there was a site called Niche Hacks, oh, yeah. um, which was sold many, many years ago. Not like many years, years ago, ago like
0: it's like three, four years ago. Yeah, yeah
1: it was 2017, 2018. Yeah, it?
0: maybe, it's like
1: many, many years. Five years ago now. <laughs> uh, we're living in the future, remember? Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, the, the whole transition there, was um, like with the community, it, it wasn't the, it wasn't done in the best way. And I think, um, they, they kind of lost out a, a bit from there. So yeah, it's, it's difficult to, to when, when an owner leaves, who's, who's kind of like the like, face of, of the company. So, the funny thing get, is the uh,
0: owner, like never showed his face previously. He was like under this steward name and like had a cartoon image basically. Um, No, it's basically the niche site lady of blogs, basically, if you guys go on Twitter. Um, Anyway, they could have probably sold the persona. It would be fine because it wasn't the real name of the guy either. Uh, So they probably should have continued because if you look at the site now, they've lost pretty much everything. Uh, And they tried pretty hard. Like They did videos and it was okay and the guy seemed to kind of know what he was doing. But I think it was too much change too fast. Like He tried to make it a, a brand new company. And people didn't buy into this. And it's quite difficult. So like this is the kind of niches like also in finance, for example, that would be the case. Like if you're getting financial advice from people that you're following and someone else takes over, you're unlikely to buy the stocks they tell you to buy just because they bought the business. That's a problem. But it's not I think most of it sites that get SEO traffic. It's not as big of an issue. I'd just be a little careful.
1: Yeah. It's also something to consider though when you're starting your own site. You know, if you positioning, yeah. position it as Mark Webster or gailbretton.com yeah, uh, with your personal brand, it's a lot harder than, you know, some, when you're creating this brand, which has its own kind of
0: presence. But even you know? like Authority Hacker, like reselling Atari Hacker would be very difficult. It would require a multi-year plan yeah. or something. We're yeah. not, again, we're not planning on that, Absolutely. but like it's, it's still an interesting debate and i thought to have that. It's like the way you build this, it's funny. People want authenticity. They want this kind of content, etc. but it also makes it, Much more difficult to pass on the business and sell it. So it's kind of, you need to find that balance between authenticity and. Scalability slash passability, you know, like that. You can give it to someone else. It's going to be a different answer for each business ad site. But let's jump on to the next point, which is going to be tech stack. So this one is definitely going to apply to most affiliate sites, etc. Ad sites that you're gonna buy, and that is that most sites that you're gonna buy, they're obviously not brand new, right? They tend to be three, four, five years old. I would say something that would be the majority of the range of sites you would buy that have decent traffic, maybe a little bit less, but most of the time they're built on tech that was released at that time, right? So you're going to buy the site that's still built on like older page builders whatever uh, and or have not been updated in terms of themes, in terms of design, in terms of all of that and one thing that is not only is it going to be costing you in terms of like site speed, etc., but that is something that you know. But quite often, if you decide to maintain the site as is, because doing big technical changes can affect your rankings positively or negatively. But you're gambling a bit. You just dropped a lot of money on that site. Do I really want to gamble? Not sure. You know, like one of the sites that we sold, like an ex- case study site for us. I can see they didn't change anything because of that because they were afraid of that. But if you maintain that tech stack, quite often you end up with a a lot more effort to manage, like uploading a new piece of content could be a lot more work, could take a lot longer. The medias are not optimized. You need to like recut the images yourself, whatever. You can obviously do some changes behind the hood, but quite often it could be quite an issue in terms of like having to retrain your staff as well and to running into that old tech stack and so on. And that could double the cost of uploading articles, that kind of stuff that could mess up with your calculations of profitability. So I would be a little bit careful both in changing the tech if the site is ranking well and in calculations of overheads of running all the tech stacks if you don't want to change it. And it's going to be a balance that you're going to need to find. Personally, I like the idea of like probably running the site for a little bit, putting new content as it is. And then maybe a year, two years later, going for a full redesign with new tech and getting up to speed on that stuff. Because let's be honest, every three, four years, I think most sites should do a big refresh of their tech yeah. stack these days. If uh, Otherwise, it's costing you in efficiency quite a lot.
1: I think it's also worth mentioning that it's rare that you'll find a site that's built the way you want it. Because most sites, just because they've been for sale for a long period, they've been being built up for three, four, five years, they're built on older technology. You know, the owners had different ideas about you know the SEO or the content structure, whatever. They're running whatever. on Beaver so, Builder,
0: you know, stuff like that. It's just yeah, yeah, like yeah, like these <laughs> these old ones. So yeah, it's tricky. It's more tricky than it sounds, and it's going to affect you more than it sounds. And from selling sites in the past, I can see most people who bought the sites and many of them were quite experienced did not dare doing big tech changes, which is quite interesting.
1: Yeah. So the next thing I want to talk about is the team and specifically the stability around that. So when a business gets sold and the new owners come in, there's a big point here where you're at a high risk of people leaving. And for most websites who have a small team with you know, a handful of writers, maybe one or two link builders, one or two or three people leaving can have a pretty catastrophic effect on you, know, you continuing the business the way it is. You can always bring in new people, but it's never going to be the same, especially true with uh, writers. So what normally happens is that the buyer and the seller, they work closely together to position this in front of the team, to communicate it, to explain what's going to happen. They come up with a plan, they talk to each other and, you know, try and get everyone's buy-in to to the whole sale. But if the seller doesn't have a good relationship with the team, and it's very difficult to know this when you're buying a site in, in advance, then you can have issues with people leaving or just choosing this point to to kind of move on. We had a situation where we sold a site, sold a business, and six months down the line, about half the team was gone, basically yeah. left. Even more. And they they went and and kind of there was it was all drama. Like stole some clients and formed their own business and, and stuff. We weren't involved in, no, we were in right any of, the, of that at the at the time. But it just goes to highlight, you know, if you if you don't get the team on board when you're buying a site, you can lose them initially or in the months following. So my advice in that situation is just get ahead of it speak if you're buying a site speak to the owner in due diligence trying to understand their relationship with the team try and talk to the team if you can in that phase like individually maybe one of the one or two of the writers or any key people and then get them on board very quickly uh, talk to them in the early days
0: i think empowering them and considering their opinions on what should be done is also quite important when you come in you're the owner but you have less experience of the business than they do I think respecting them and respecting that goes a long way.
1: It also goes to, it goes along with what you're saying with the tech stack, right? You don't want to go in and just like rip everything up yeah, and change everything exactly. on day one. The same is true for people. You probably don't want to change the way you're writing content or the processes on on day one. Just keep it going as it is. It's been successful so far, and then. As you learn the business, you can then start making more and more tweaks yeah. and adjustments to it.
0: Give them an opportunity, if possible, to like advance their position by helping you take over the business properly. I think it can be a win-win situation. Given the potential cost of losing so many people or like having to rebuild a team or whatever, trust me, you're often better off offering potential bonuses or something like that to someone that would... Maybe we're just a writer or just an editor, but then you can have regular calls about the overall editorial direction of the site and what they think and their feeling on the niche, etc. And I think this consideration to me is is very important, both monetary, but also in terms of, of respect of their experience and giving them credit for where the site got so far and what you got interested in in the first place. I think, yeah, doing that and empowering people is the key to teams properly. Instead of coming in thinking you know everything, and telling people how it's going to be from now on and, and how shit it was before, basically. So that's pretty much the... Do t- you want to add anything on Team Stability? No, no. Okay, so the next one is links, right? Obviously, we talked about content, we talked about links. Historically, Google doesn't seem to have punished very hard in terms uh recently, at least in the recent years, because historically they have, um, in terms of uh, having bad links, basically. But they seem to be quite good at, at least ignoring links that they consider irrelevant, that are not matching, you know, like organic links, I would say. And I actually personally suspect, but that's just a suspicion, I don't have data to back it up, that a lot of core updates might be more about links than people make it out to be. And it just be Google just discarding batches of links that don't match what they're looking for. could be a reason why people go up and go down, et cetera, and why these big sites tend to keep going up because they tend to have more real links than like small SEO sites. And I know people are going to challenge that, so I just had a question I wanted to put in there, then we go back to the point, which is, have you been building links to a page for a while and then the rankings haven't moved even though you've been building links for a while? And that would be, for me, a manifestation of Google being quite good at neutralizing links they don't like anymore. But anyway, that can be a problem if you believe that Google could be discarding some of the links to the website. But another problem could be that lots of sites for sale in the marketplaces are supported by PBNs. Still to this day, you know, owners own 20, 30, 40, 50 sites with like homepage links pointing to key commercial you the rankings on that site that then gets you the valuation of the site and the price you're gonna pay for it. The problem is quite often these owners sell the site, they leave the links for a while and then six months later they're like, well, I have my other project now, I'd like to use these links. And the more links there is on the PBN, the less powerful it is because of the nature of page rank, right? It's divided by the number of outgoing links. So they remove these links to the site they sold then your ranking drops and you're like, oh shit, Actually, what probably wasn't worth the price I paid because you paid for these rankings, really. And these rankings were supported by something that you didn't acquire with the website. So they had the freedom to remove these links. And really, you don't have anything to say after the fact. But you have something to say before you buy. And that is the interesting part. So the thing that I would do is I would probably check the website on not just Ahrefs because you can actually block... Certain crawlers, especially the href block uh, bot and the SEMrush bot, tend to be blocked by a lot of PBNs, and so the site could be ranking up, and you would not even see the links in hrefs. They would be invisible to you if you just use these tools. That's when I like to use smaller, cheaper, worse SEO tools. To check the website. So, like that's kind of the joke that we have internally. That's like the main use of Surfstat. I have that account that I got on Absimo a while ago, like that lifetime account. And when I want to find PBNs, I tend to use it because nobody blocks Surfstat in their PBNs. <laughs> and so you tend to see a different picture quite often than what you would see in Ahrefs for sites that use PBNs. And so that's an opportunity for you to find these sites even if they're hidden. And that, that is a, a trick for people who sell websites, right? They support it by a PBN, blocked on HRFs and SEMrush, sell it for a high price, reuse these links on the next project, sell it for a high price, reuse these links on the next project, and end up just gathering more value than they probably should because they remove the part that is valuable to your site. So once you find these, you can go during the, bio, the, the vetting process, you can go and ask about these, and you can either acquire them with the site, like quite often, these are sold as a package deal, but they, they might not be sold as a package deal if you don't bring it up, so it's up to you to find them. Or you can have a contract with the guy to maintain these links, or have him replace them and then see if the rankings stay, and then whatever. But basically, you need to negotiate here, or you can just negotiate a lower price, I guess. You can just say, well, look, these rankings are here from these links, these links are not part of the package, I want a big discount, or I'm not interested, and, and work out, basically. But I think you need to be quite careful, because that's probably one of the most common things that could be deceiving in the sale of a website. Like, the content is there, right? It's up to you to go and browse the website. But the links can be hidden quite well, and you need to go and dig for that. So be very careful, use multiple tools to check the links, and uh, negotiate based on, what, on your findings.
1: And I think if you're maybe more new to this, and you might have a harder time kind of understanding good and bad links, then just ask someone, or you know, hire a link builder yeah, to do a someone, consultation yeah. to help you you run through this. Most there are there are due diligence companies out there that you know specialize in buyer side due diligence to help you understand these kind of SEO things. I haven't used any of them personally. They have, I've been on the receiving end when they've done due diligence on on us and they're generally pretty thorough, but I don't know how far they go in terms of looking at, you know, non stuff they can't find on Ahrefs or hidden PBNs or or anything like that. Yeah,
0: I would really do that. Like if I I spent like hundreds of thousands on the site, like buy a month some multiple tools and do it. Okay,
1: let's move on to the next one now, which is copyright issues and other hidden legal skeletons in the, in the closet. So when you take ownership of a site, you also are taking ownership of all the risks and all the potential problems that may occur. And the issue is that some of these things may have been, some of these crimes, if you wanna call them that, may have been committed prior to you taking ownership. So unless there's specific wording in the contract, which apportions kind of blame or whatever to the, the previous owner sometimes there is this, sometimes they're not there's not so check the wording of the contract especially if the uh the seller wrote it then you need to be you need to be careful here most common example is going to be copyrighted images happens a lot that a writer will just go to google images take an image off there or steal one from a competitor's site and place it on the article if they haven't been trained properly in you know image attribution and, and all this stuff or if they're just you know taking a shortcut being a bit lazy or you know outsourcing the work themselves sometimes happens then you can run foul of this and you may wake up one day with an email demanding $10,000 per infringement for copyright abuse and loss of business and all this kind of stuff usually with these things, the best, it's, it's, this is definitely not legal advice, but usually the best approach with copyright trolls, as I like to call them, is kind of to ignore them because they they tend to work on, a, you know, if someone replies, they'll spend a lot more effort actually trying to take the case forward. But if they can't get hold of the, the owner yeah. by email, then they generally leave it, obviously remove the offending image and stuff. But yeah, I would uh, if you get something like that, have a bit of a research of what other people recommend doing before you instantly reply and apologize and try and negotiate the fine or whatever. So that's, that's definitely something to be wary of. We, one of our friends also fell foul to situation where a writer was not copying, but let's say yes, heavily, he was. heavily, no, well, he was copying not, not stuff. copy pasting content or not copy pasting images, which is what the, the copyright thing I was talking about. But they were heavily plagiarizing the work to the point where in one article or one paragraph, 70, 80, 90% of the content would be word for word the same. And they were just changing a few of the, the, the smaller words around, it. or the images were being redone by the by the team, but they'd literally taken the competitor's image as the base and they just redone that in their own brand colors. Now, this was all done by, you know, one rogue writer. And so the site owner end up suffering, though, because the competitor of theirs wrote an expose of what they were doing. And there's all sorts of negative comments. And this now ranks on page one for their brand name. So like loads of people see it when they're searching for for this brand. And it's just a really unfortunate case of, you know, one writer gone rogue. But you have to be careful because if that happened before you bought it and then you, you bought it, you also inherit all these problems as well. So that's why checking their processes for how they get all their, all their images especially, and just uh, looking at their content, comparing it to competitors and stuff is is a wise wise move early on. Yeah, do you want to take the
0: last one as well?
1: Yeah, so this is our final one. And it's a lot of work to prepare a site for sale. It's not just, you don't just put it, list it and then it sells. It can be months of work sometimes. What, leading what up kind to of work, like what's it. included? So most people, when they're building a site, they don't build it to sell. They just build it to try and make money. And at some point they, they decide, oh, I want to sell it. And then, OK, what do I need to change now in order for this to be sellable? And that's things like we were talking about earlier before, you know, removing yourself from the brand, removing yourself from the day to day operations of the business, having either people in place to manage the, the team or having a team in place with the correct processes to get everything done so that there's less and less of you required to do the stuff that that matters for the business and the issue is that it takes time to build all these systems and if you're trying to do it in a rush just before a sale then two it creates two problems one you can take your foot off the gas for the other stuff you know content link building all all the stuff that's gonna grow the site so sometimes If the owner has done that for the last three months and you buy a site and the growth kind of dies off and it it sort of flatlines or even dips a little bit, which can be worrying. And the other thing is because they've prepared all these processes quickly just before the sale, they haven't really been battle tested. So their new editorial system they've built might look cool, but if writers aren't using it properly and as soon as you take over, it all goes to shit, then that could be a problem as well. So you have to be aware that this is likely going to happen in some way when the owner knows that they're going to sell a site there is an element of okay we're not going to try 100% anymore. We'll still maybe push it 80%, but it's not it's not not going to be 100 and there could be could be certain issues there. This used to be a real big factor when it came uh, because of the way sites used to be valued. So the cost of content and links and things like that used to actually come off the revenue and you would calculate like a, a profit with all these expenses taken out. And then the multiple would be based on that. So what site owners did was for six months or 12 months before they sold, they, stopped spending they would it. just stop spending, they spend minimal amount on content and no links. So that their cost would come down, revenue would hopefully stay the same, and the profit would increase a lot. And so the multiple, the value, of valuation of the site would increase a lot. Now, obviously, this is not necessarily a good thing for the new owner, because if there's no content or links for a year, then most likely things are going to stall or start stalling soon. So most brokers now have mechanisms to add back some of these costs and kind of they're a bit more sophisticated about the, the way they they calculate it now you can make arguments that it's an investment cost you can make arguments that it's a a cost of of doing business cost it works both ways but it's just something you you need to be aware of as as a buyer that this this can and most likely will come into effect when you're you're buying a site so if it stalls a little bit afterwards this could be why
0: Okay, well, that's pretty much uh, our seven things to look out for if you're buying. Eight eight things,
1: actually, but yeah. Oh,
0: really? Okay, fine. Well, you got a bonus one. Thank you for listening, guys. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe, like, drop us a comment, tell us if you are considering buying sites, and tell us if you think they're too expensive, they're too cheap, or they're just right in the comments, and then uh, it's going to be interesting We might discuss the results in the next podcast. See you in two weeks. Have a good week.